calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Contagious is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com contagious. The Situation Room. The elevator opened at the bottom level of the West Wing. Tom Maskell and Murray Longworth walked out. Murray had made many trips to the White House in the past 30 years, of course, but none this significant, and none with this caliber of an audience. The Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Secretary of Defense, the Chief of Staff, and, of course, the President. There were actually two Situation Rooms under the White House. The first one could handle about three dozen people. That was the one seen on TV shows and movies and in newscasts. They walked right by it. Tom led him through mahogany doors into the smaller of the two situation rooms. Like its more famous counterpart, this room sported mahogany paneling and nearly wall-to-wall video screens. This one, however, was more discreet. One mahogany conference table ran down the middle of the room, six chairs on either side. Very few people even knew this room existed. It was mostly for situations unfit for public consumption. Military men filled the chairs on the table's left side. The president's left, of course. Next to the president sat Donald Martin, Secretary of Defense, then General Hamilton Barnes, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Army General Peter Franco, Air Force General Louis Monroe, Admiral Nathan Begley, head of the Navy, and finally, the highly opinionated buzz-cut-wearing General Monty Cooper, Marines. Vanessa sat on the other side of the table, first chair to the right of the president. Then Tom's chair, then space for Murray. Empty chairs lined the walls. These were usually occupied by junior officials, assistants, but today everyone was flying solo. They couldn't afford a leak. Maybe Gutierrez still wanted to reveal everything to the public, but at least he understood that until that time came, They couldn't afford extraneous eyes and ears. Mr. President, Murray said, the attack is scheduled to begin in 45 minutes. If I may, sir, I'd like to take advantage of the time to bring you up to date on another development. Gutierrez sighed and sagged back into his chair. Murray couldn't blame him for showing frustration. What with the Iranians, increased hostility between India and Pakistan, Palestinian complications, Russian troops rattling sabers over Arctic oil and, of course, Project Tangram. 
It had to be the longest first eight days in office any president had ever faced. Gutierrez slouched for a second, then sat up again and straightened his coat. It seemed a clear effort to look more presidential. He nodded at Murray. We've detected another possible host location, Murray said, near Glidden, Wisconsin. Is that anywhere near Bloomingville, where Ogden is going to attack? Gutierrez asked. South Bloomingville, sir, Murray said. And no, it's about 700 miles away. Glidden is near Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Is there another construct? Vanessa asked. We don't know yet, Murray said. Dew Phillips is in Glidden, trying to find parasite hosts who could identify the construct's location. He's using Perry Dossie to track down the hosts. Dossie, Vanessa said. He's under control, Murray said. Under control, Vanessa said coolly. I did a little fact-finding. When infected, Dossie killed his friend Bill Miller. Then Kevin Mest, the person who gave him the Mather location. And then, it seems, you forgot to tell us he burned three little old ladies to death to get the South Bloomingville location. Murray blinked. How had she found out about that? That was self-defense, Murray said. Vanessa raised her eyebrows. Three women in their 80s, Murray? Self-defense. The president's eyes narrowed. Murray, is this true? She'd saved this up and sprung it on him, right in front of the president. Yes, Mr. President, but I'm not kidding about self-defense. Those ladies were infected, and they tried to firebomb Dossie with a Molotov cocktail. Apparently, he caught it and threw it back. That's five deaths, Vanessa said. Tell us, Murray, why are you still using him? We don't really have a choice, ma'am, Murray said. As I've explained, the only reason we found any of the gates is because Dossie can find the hosts. I understand that, Vanessa said, her voice dripping with contempt. Your bloodhound picked up the scent. Now, send in professional soldiers, not Phillips and his pet psycho. Donald cleared his throat. Vanessa, Ogden's men are already deployed. I don't think Murray has a choice here. She shot Donald a glare that spoke volumes. Ogden has 480 men in the Domrec, she said, using the military acronym for Domestic Reaction Battalion. Four companies of 120 men each. Ogden is going in with Company X-Ray, and he's got Whiskey Company on reserve there, right? Donald nodded. That leaves companies Yankee and Zulu on the ground at Fort Bragg, Vanessa said. So why the hell aren't we using them instead of Dossie and Phillips? We need to be subtle, Murray said. This is a town, not the deep woods. If we drop two companies on Main Street, USA, that might attract a little attention. And a rampaging psychopath won't, she said. That's enough, Gutierrez said. Murray, I'm sure you took steps to keep Dossie in check. Am I correct? Yes, Mr. President, Murray said. We have two seasoned agents following Dossie at all times. Dossie will locate the hosts. Then these men will move in, take Dossie down if necessary, and secure the hosts. General Cooper knocked twice on the table. This is all good and fine but we have an attack to monitor here, he said in a voice so gruff it almost sounded like a caricature of how a Marine General should talk. Not to speak out of turn, Mr. President, 
But there's information we need to share so you know what you're seeing when the attack begins. Gutierrez nodded. Thank you, General Cooper. Murray, before we focus on Ogden's attack, I want to make something clear. We know that this is a crisis situation, and Americans may get hurt, but we don't need them getting hurt by the people who are supposed to be solving the problem. Understand? Yes, sir, Murray said. I do. Murray did understand the need to control Dossie. He just hoped Dew Phillips understood it as well. Vanessa Colburn wasn't playing around. She clearly wanted Murray gone. And as much as he disliked that woman, she was right about one thing. That kid was a fucking psycho. You shouldn't hit your kids. Dew Phillips ran a red light at the intersection of Grant and Broadway. He'd even put the portabubble on top of his Lincoln, its circling light playing off the sheets of pouring rain. Fuck secrecy. He had two men down. That murdering kid was going after hosts again. Dew wondered if any of the infected would be alive by the time Margaret arrived. Thaddeus McMillan Sr. sat at his kitchen table, bouncing his five-year-old, Stephen, on his knee. Stephen wore his favorite fuzzy yellow pajama bottoms and a little Milwaukee Bucks t-shirt. Looked so damn cute. Stephen was the good child. Tad Jr., not a good child. Sarah, not a good child. Thaddeus pushed the thoughts away. He didn't want to think about his daughter. A dozen empty beer bottles stood on the table, leaving wet ring stains on the map spread across the table's surface. There were more beer bottles on the floor, along with a half-empty fifth of gin. He didn't drink gin. His wife, Jenny, guzzled the stuff. Fucking alcoholic bitch. She'd been a three-martini-a-day girl up until Junior started acting up. Since then, she'd skipped the martini glasses altogether and started pouring gin right into her favorite Hello Kitty coffee cup. Every time she took a sip, that stupid cartoon cat seemed to stare at him. Limping along on one crutch, Jenny hobbled into the kitchen. She couldn't put weight on her right foot, which was understandable if you saw the thing, and Thad had no desire to ever see it again. Jenny's insistence on keeping Ginny Kitty in hand at all times complicated the crutch walk even more. She stopped just past the open doorway between the kitchen and the stairway that led up to the kids' rooms. She stared at him. So did that fucking cat. What are we going to do about that boy of yours? She asked. Thaddeus shrugged. I don't know. He's a bad influence on Stephen and Sammy, she said. I don't know why you let him run wild. Look, I grounded him, Thaddeus said. What else can we do? You can discipline him, she said. Thaddeus looked away, ashamed. He had disciplined the boy. Maybe a little too much. He'd hit his own son, right in the face. Not slapped, but punched. How could he do that to his own flesh and blood? And yet the boy was acting so crazy. Something had to be done. Thaddeus, Jenny said. We have to go. You know we do. They're almost done. We haven't even left yet. We can't take Junior. And we can't leave him behind either. He nodded slowly. Maybe Jenny was right. For 14 years, ever since their first date, he'd been able to count on her for sound advice. Maybe she could see the obvious when he couldn't, 
He didn't know. Maybe she just cared for him enough to give tough love. He hung his head, stared absently at the back of little Stephen's head. Junior had always been his favorite. You weren't supposed to have a favorite child, he knew, and yet he couldn't change the fact that Junior lit up his heart just a little more than all the others. Maybe that was why he'd been so lenient. All right, Jenny, Thaddeus said. Get him in here. Jenny leaned back so she could shout up the steps to the second floor. Junior, come into the kitchen. Your father and I want to talk to you. She leaned forward again, resting heavily on her crutch. They heard Tad's bedroom door open. It always squeaked. Thaddeus kept meaning to oil the hinges, but he hadn't gotten around to it. You've got to have a firm hand, Jenny said flatly. You must not waver. You must be strong, just like you were with Sarah. Sarah. He didn't want to think about Sarah. Tad stomped down the stairs, stomped fast. But how could a little boy sound so heavy? Thaddeus watched Jenny lean back into the hall again. An arm, a huge arm, lashing down, a hissing sound like a golf club swinging just before it hits the ball. Then a dull, wet thunk, like the sound of a watermelon dropped on the floor. Jenny's head snapped down, then limply bounced back up, but only halfway. The very top of her head wobbled like shaking jello. She managed one staggering step, then dropped to the floor. Her Jenny kitty cup landed with a ceramic clank, spilling four shots worth of liquor onto the kitchen's linoleum. Thaddeus's grip on little Stephen tightened as he stood. He started to come around the table, heading to the kitchen counter to grab a knife, a frying pan, something, when the monstrous man turned the corner. Thaddeus McMillan Sr., froze in his tracks. Holy fuck, he said. The huge, wet, blonde nightmare stood in his kitchen doorway. Thaddeus had seen a man that big once, almost that big. He'd met Detroit Lions defensive tackle Dusty Smith in a bar. Dusty was six foot four, 270 pounds, more like a refrigerator with legs than a human being. This guy was bigger than Dusty Smith. And Dusty Smith, hadn't been holding a tire iron. In one hand, the man held the tire iron that had just killed Jenny. In the other massive hand, he held Thaddeus's baby, Sam. He wasn't cradling Sam. He was holding the tiny baby the way you might pick up a toy doll that's been left on the floor. Thumb and forefinger circled Sammy's little neck. The three remaining fingers wrapped around Sammy's yellow pajama-clad body. Sammy's eyes were closed. Oh, no, it's him. The voice is in Thad's head. They'd been quiet most of the evening. It's the son of a bitch. I'm here to help you, the son of a bitch said. Little Stephen raised an arm and pointed at the man. He spoke in his baby boy voice. Daddy, he said. Kill this motherfucker. Stephen suddenly squirmed and kicked. Thad dropped him. The little boy fell clumsily, but scrambled to his feet. Stephen's little Milwaukee Bucks t-shirt slid up when he stood, exposing a light blue triangle on the skin at the small of his back. The boy screamed a murderous, gravelly battle cry that sounded almost comical from such a tiny voice, then charged the giant man. The son of a bitch took a step forward and kicked, swinging his hips into the blow. Stephen made a little staccato sound when the foot connected, a half cough, 
half squeal. His small body shot across the room like it had been fired from a cannon. With a sickening snap, Stephen's right side slammed into the edge of the kitchen table. The impact tilted the table back, spilling beer bottles onto the linoleum floor before it rocked back to level. Stephen's body, still bent at an odd angle to the right, hit the floor. The boy's little fingers twitched a bit. But other than that, he didn't move. Thaddeus reached the counter, yanked open a drawer, and pulled out a butcher knife. Yes! Kill him! Kill him! He turned to face the man murdering his family. But as he did, he saw a flash of spinning black. Then his head filled with a sudden darkness and pain. He fell to the floor, blinking, thoughts slipping in and out. He tried to spit. A chunk of tooth barely escaped his lips and hung on his right cheek, plastered there by blood and saliva. Get up! Get up! A hand around his neck, lifting him, his feet dangling. Kill him! Kill him! His breath, non-existent. Thaddeus opened his eyes. The man-monster's face was only an inch away. Two days' growth of reddish beard. A snarl. Thaddeus stared into blue eyes wide with madness. You shouldn't hit your kids, the man said. Thaddeus heard an approaching siren. But it was too late. The hand around his neck might as well have been an iron vice. It squeezed slow and steady. It's okay, the man said. He smiled. I'm here to help you. Breathe, said the voice in his head, the same voice that had made him kill his only daughter. Fight, you have to breathe. Thaddeus felt his bladder let go, felt the heat of piss filling his underwear and jeans, then felt his sphincter offer up the same betrayal. Even in the act of dying, he somehow had a flash of embarrassment. He would have liked to have said one last thing. He would have liked to tell the voices in his head to stick it where the sun don't shine. But he couldn't make any noise at all, save for a tiny, hissing gurgle. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. The Margot Mobile Margaret Montoya, Clarence Otto, and Amos Brown sat in comfortable seats in the customized sleeper cabin of a semi-tractor trailer. The massive 18-wheeler rolled north along Highway 13, followed closely by a second outwardly identical rig. The two trailers, designed to work together as one unit, were worth about $25 million and had come to be known collectively as the Margomobile. The three sat biggest to smallest, a cross-section of cultures, Clarence's chocolate skin and tall, muscular bulk on the left. Margaret, with her long black hair and Hispanic complexion in the middle, 
and the diminutive Oso-Caucasian Amos on the right. Those two men constituted one half of Margaret's team. The other half drove the rigs. Anthony Gitchum handled this one. Marcus Thompson drove the other. Murray's single-minded mission to keep those in the know to the absolute minimum had landed Gitch and Marcus this choice assignment, thanks to their rather unique set of skills. Both men had logged at least 100 hours driving a semi, had medical assistant training, combat experience, and, the big one, hands-on experience with biohazard procedures and gear. Gitch had driven army rigs in the Mideast and traded small arms fire a few times, but Clint Eastwood, he was not. Clint wasn't as pale, wasn't as skinny, and didn't have a fro that made him look like a white Black Panther's wannabe from 1974. Marcus was something of a study in contrast to Gitch, with his deep black skin, shaved head, and enough wiry muscle for both men. Marcus's combat experience, apparently, was rather extensive. He didn't talk about it, and no one asked. From what Margaret could gather, being assigned to drive a truck and lug around rotting corpses that might or might not be fatally infectious, well, that was like a vacation for Marcus. Maybe it was why he whistled all the damn time. Her whole team was already dressed in black biohazard suits, completely covering them in airtight PVC material, save for their exposed head and hands. She was so used to the suit that she didn't give it a second thought anymore. A silly, uncontrollable part of her liked the fact that it hid the extra weight on her hips. When it came time to go in, they'd all don the gloves clipped to their belts and the helmets sitting at their feet, pressurize the suits, and they'd be ready to face the latest horrors in an endless, gruesome parade. Horrors that always seemed to involve one scary Perry Dossie. Margaret didn't know how or why Perry could still hear the triangles. CAT scans showed a network of very thin lines spreading through the center of his brain, like a 3D spiderweb or a spongy mesh. While she was fighting to keep him alive, she hadn't dared risk trying to get a sample of the material. Any additional trauma on his ravaged body could have been the final straw. Since he'd regained consciousness, Perry wouldn't even talk about the incident. It was no surprise he wouldn't let anyone slide a drill into his skull. Even if they could get a sample, it probably wouldn't do them any good. The National Security Agency, the group that handled signal intelligence and cryptography for the government, detected no signals of any kind. The triangles and hatchlings communicated, no one knew how. The NSA's prevailing theory involved some form of communication via quantum tunneling, but that was guesswork at best without a shred of data to back it up. Whatever the science behind it, Perry's homing instinct had been the only thing keeping them in the game. Unfortunately, when he found infected hosts, he killed them. First, Kevin Mest, who had butchered three friends with a fireplace poker. Perry claimed self-defense for that one, and everyone bought it. His self-defense claim for burning three 80-year-old women alive? Well, that was a little harder to swallow. But whatever he had done, however ugly, he found the constructs. Kevin Mest's death resulted in Ogden's destroying the one at Mather. The three elderly ladies Perry had burned to death? Because of them. Ogden was in South Bloomingville right now, hopefully taking that construct out as well. Glidden would be different. Dew had said so. His men, Claude Baumgartner and Jens Milner, were watching Perry at all times. They would deliver live hosts. When they did, 
she knew she could operate on the infected, successfully remove the parasites. Murray wanted live hosts for other reasons, reasons that created a bit of a catch-22. He wanted to interrogate the triangles. Good in theory, but Margaret would operate to remove any growth she found. If that killed the triangle but saved a life, too bad for Murray. Her job was to save lives, not keep someone chained up as a parasite interpreter. Clarence studied a map resting on his knees. He wiped sweat from his forehead with the back of his hand, then let out an exasperated sigh. Come on, Margot, this suit is annoying, he said. I'm taking it off. Clarence, give it a rest, Margaret said. I don't want to go over this again. But there's no purpose for this thing, Clarence said. Dew has been around dozens of corpses. He hasn't contracted anything. Yet. You look like a black Stay puff Marshmallow Man, Amos said. It's not a good look for you. And you look like a short KKK Grand Dragon who washed his whites with his darks, Clarence said. He looked at Margaret again. What about Dossie? You fixed him up. You didn't start growing triangles. The suit is making me sweat, and sweaty is definitely not a good look for me. Margaret would beg to differ on that. She'd seen CIA agent Clarence Otto all sweaty, seen him that way up close and personal, been all sweaty herself at the same time, and she couldn't imagine a better look for him. Amos laughed. You serve me up a softball about being all sweaty? I'm not even touching that one. Seriously, Otto, you have to make it a little harder to make fun of you two boinking whenever you think no one is looking. That suit will stop microbes, Clarence said, but I'm afraid it doesn't offer much protection against a pistol whipping. Amos laughed again and held up his hands, palms out. Okay, okay, take it easy. Clarence talked tough, intimidating voice and all, but over the past three months, he and Amos had become fast friends. Clarence Otto was just flat-out likable. Witty, helpful, respectful, and with a major streak of deductive common sense, he often put a strategic perspective on Margaret and Amos's scientific discoveries. As for Amos, his multidisciplinary expertise and sheer brilliance had helped the team stay one step ahead of the infection. More like a half-step, maybe, but at least they were still ahead. At some point in the past three months, both men had revealed a love for basketball. Otto, a former Division III point guard and a lifelong fan of the Boston Celtics, discovered that short, frail little Amos Braun had a wicked outside jumper. Well, calling it a jumper was a stretch. He came off the ground maybe three inches when he shot. Amos couldn't play one-on-one to save his life. At a game of horse, however, he could beat Otto six times out of ten. Amos was also a lifelong hoops fan, although he preferred the Detroit Pistons, giving the two men plenty to argue about in the many hours when there wasn't a corpse on the autopsy table. Clarence, Margaret said. No one has been infected by contact yet, but that doesn't mean the disease isn't contagious. There could also be toxins we haven't seen yet, or something else that could hurt you. That suit will keep you safe, so it stays on. Otto sighed. Yes, sir. You made her this way, Amos said. I remember when Margaret was a total pushover. You're the one that got her on the glorious Steinem Express. All women lived and everything. I know, I know. Otto said. I wish I'd kept my mouth shut. Keep a barefoot and in the kitchen. Don't forget pregnant, Amos said. But you're working on that. Margaret felt her face flush red. 
Amos, knock it off. Amos, my diminutive white friend, Otto said, you're just mad that a fine-looking black man is getting all the action. Fine-looking until you put on that suit and get all sweaty, Amos said. Then you look like a half-chewed Tootsie Roll. Margaret sighed. The juvenile name-calling never ceased. She just didn't get men. Clarence smiled and nodded, which meant he had a killer comeback. But before he could speak, his cell phone chirped. There was only one person who would be calling. Clarence answered, Otto here. He listened. His smile faded into an expression that was all business. He pinched the cell phone between his shoulder and ear, then looked at the map. We'll be there in three minutes. He hung up. What's the matter? Margaret asked. Baum and Milner are down, Otto said. A kid named Tad found him and said Dossie was going to his house. Clarence leaned forward to give Gitch directions. Margaret cursed under her breath. If Perry got to those hosts first... Less lethal. Staccato gunfire echoed through the woods as 3rd Platoon opened the engagement, making the dark western tree line sparkle with bright muzzle flashes. 1st Platoon waited exactly three minutes, then pushed due north, straight toward the construct. 2nd Platoon swept east and curved north, ready to flank the hatchlings should they flee directly away from 3rd Platoon's fire. 4th Platoon held their position. If the hatchlings fled northwest, they'd run directly into the 4th, If they ran due north, the 4th would strafe their flank the whole way. Predator drones circled low to the northeast, ready to launch Hellfire missiles that would either herd the hatchlings back into the action or kill them outright. There was nowhere for the creatures to run. Ogden watched through night vision goggles, ready to adapt his strategy if something unexpected popped up. But nothing did. Corporal Cope, status of air support. Apaches, Predators, and Strike Eagles still on station, sir. Cope said, ready if you need them. Very well. Ogden watched as 1st Platoon moved in, methodically marching forward in a squad-after-squad leapfrog style that allowed a steady advance with constant fire on the enemy position. As 1st Platoon moved closer, 3rd Platoon ceased fire to avoid any friendly casualties. Two soldiers in each nine-man squad carried a less lethal weapon. Like all the platoons, 1st had three squads, putting six less lethal weapons into the initial infantry assault. Such weapons had once been called non-lethal, but in combat, there was never a guarantee of preserving life. If you killed half the people you fought instead of all the people, well, then that wasn't actually non-lethal, now was it? They didn't know what would work against the hatchlings, so they brought two less lethals, the sticky gun and shock rounds. The sticky gun fired jets of foam that would, theoretically, tangle the hatchling's tentacle legs. The guns had been used with mixed success against people in Somalia. The mixed part was that the foam sometimes got in the target's eyes, blinding them, or clogged up their mouths. Put a clogged mouth together with hands immobilized by that same foam, and within minutes, you had a dead target. Somewhat unacceptable against human targets, but hatchlings were a different story. It was worth the risk. Compared to the sticky guns, The shock round seemed almost normal. 5.56-millimeter bullets that delivered a concentrated electric charge. These were untested, 
but his men didn't have to do anything different from what they were trained to do, point their weapons and fire. He'd avoided tasers. Their range was just too short for his comfort. If electricity even worked on the hatchlings, he had that covered with the shock rounds. He'd brought the less lethals, assuming that the hatchlings would behave the way they had in the last two engagements. Once the fighting began, they would rush the ground troops and force hand-to-hand fighting. He hoped the lead hatchlings could be taken down with a less lethal. Then the rest could be slaughtered with concentrated conventional fire. But this time, the hatchlings didn't attack. Ogden watched the construct. The little monsters moved around the structure itself, scuttled across the ground surrounding it, but they didn't come out to engage. One by one they shuddered as bullets tore through their plasticine skins. Gouts of their purple blood looked gray through the night vision goggles, spraying on the ground in stringy strands before the hatchlings collapsed into twitching heaps. If any of those bullets were shock rounds, they punched through the hatchlings just like normal ammo. Why the hell weren't they fighting back? He had a bad feeling he knew why. Another trap. Something new. He had no choice but to push forward and hope his attack plan allowed enough flexibility to react when that trap was sprung. Corporal Cope lowered the handset and held it against his chest. Colonel, 1st and 2nd platoons report no resistance. Nothing is coming out to attack. They estimate enemy forces are down to maybe five or six individuals. Order immediate ceasefire of lethal weaponry, Ogden barked. Less lethals move in slowly. Sticky guns first, but tell them to also try to shock rounds and see if they have any effect. All squads are to try and take one alive. Tell the squad leaders no lethal fire unless they specifically order it. The last shots echoed through the woods as the soldiers stopped firing the M4 carbines and M249 squad automatic weapons. Ogden turned to face Mazagati. Sergeant Major, let's move in. I want to see this thing up close. Sir, Mazagati said, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't say that's a stupid idea for you to get that close. Again, sir. Understood, Ogden said. I'm feeling lucky. Again. Proceed. Mazagati flashed hand signals to Ogden's personal squad. Ogden drew his sidearm and followed. Corporal Cope trailed a step behind and to the right radio at the ready. With the gunfire gone, Ogden heard the non-lethals, the whoosh of the foam guns, and the normal-sounding reports of shock rounds. He followed the platoon to within 75 yards of the construct before he ordered all platoons to halt. First platoon was only 40 yards away now. A quick sprint would take them right into the construct. Ogden saw the hatchlings scurrying around inside the glowing arches. Triangular bodies, three tentacle legs that looked like muscular black pythons. The point of the shortest hatchling would come up just to his knee, the tallest one to his chin. The sticky foam seemed to be working, reducing two hatchlings to weakly wiggling lumps on the muddy ground, unable to pull those tentacle legs loose. He counted another five hatchlings moving freely, but they didn't engage. Did they fear the weapons? Were they aware that the less lethals might isolate them? If so, why didn't they at least run north? Why didn't they try something? Ogden again sensed a trap. The enemy wasn't behaving rationally or consistently with the previous two encounters. But trap or no trap, he had his orders. Corporal Cope, 
Tell First Platoon to move in. Capture the enemy by hand. Cope spoke into his handset and relayed the orders. Thirty-five yards ahead, Ogden watched a line of men rise up and silently walk forward. The three foam gunners led the charge, each flanked on the immediate left and right by comrades carrying M4s. The rest of each respective squad fanned out on either side of this lead element. Ogden watched. The hatchlings seemed to sense the advance. They clustered tighter around the base of the smallest arch. First platoon closed to 30 yards, then 20. The line of men rushed forward through the snow, moving in. A spark flashed somewhere beneath the hatchlings, at the base of the arch. Was this it? Was it opening up? Another flash, then a steady glow backlit the hatchlings. This new illumination glowed only at the base of one arch. The glow flickered, jumped, and Ogden recognized it for what it was. Fire. Blue flamed, not orange, but fire nonetheless. The flames crawled up the arch as if it were made of tinder, shooting along the curve almost like a flamethrower. All five of the free-moving hatchlings jumped into the flames, igniting themselves. They scampered towards the stuck hatchlings, setting them aflame before running into the other arches and the log-like things, spreading the blaze. Within seconds, the whole construct danced with crackling blue flames. Heat pushed his soldiers back, stopping their advance as surely as a wall. Tell the men to fall back and set up a perimeter at 50 yards, Ogden said. And don gas masks. We don't know what kind of fumes that thing might put out. It wasn't an ambush. He had a feeling it was something worse. Not a trap. A decoy. You have been listening to Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy, written by Scott Sigler, performed by the author, produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.